We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14 this morning. And we're going to see a story of two, two different people and two very different hearts. As I think about this passage and I think about some of the outcomes of it, I think of some interactions that I've had with my kids on recent times and, and maybe a little further back. My kids are very creative. They're creative, and if you have kids, they're probably creative as well. Or as you were once a kid, you were probably creative in these ways. As my kids have gotten older, their creativity has found new and more substantial outlets to fit, that fit their ages. But I can remember fondly the preschool and kindergarten elementary days where each week Carly and I would accumulate upwards a hundred different paper kid crafts from various sources. And if I'm honest, very few of those crafts made it into the Nicodemus Family Hall of Fame. Some weeks, none of them made the cut. Sorry, kids. My kids would also seem to become extra creative when we'd ask them to clean their room or to pick up their toys or to get dressed for bed. It never failed. They would leave our presence to go accomplish their assignment, and when we checked in on them, they'd be drawing a stick figure on a piece of paper with some scribbles or a statement declaring their name plus daddy equals love forever. I loved these sentimental offerings of their love for me. I really did. I even miss them sometimes. However, the simple assignment that was given was all too often not completed. It reminds me of um, a conversation that I would have that would go like this when, when they were reminded of the clear assignment. And it would go like this, but daddy, I made you a card. I know, and I love it. But you didn't even begin to clean your room. But my room was really messy. I know, that's why I asked you to clean it. But the mess was actually not my fault. It was because of, and insert this sibling's name, because they made the mess. But you said you were going to come up sooner than you did, and you didn't come. That doesn't change what I asked you to do. And see, these interactions got me thinking about my interactions with my Heavenly Father. I far too often act like my kids when it comes to relating to God the Father. He clearly asks me to obey, and I come back with construction paper crafts declaring my love for him, thinking that my token offering would hold greater significance than my obedience. He asks me to wait, and instead of waiting, I write both of our names with a heart encircling them. Or he asks me to go, and I go about my business rather than his business. I desire of my kids the same thing that the Lord desires of me full and complete obedience. In fact, 1 John 5, 3 says that God's love language is the obedience of his children. It goes like this. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Now, they may look burdensome on the surface. And they may feel burdensome based on our current circumstances. But where there's a clear word from the Lord, we show our heart for God by trusting what is true. And our, our theme and our main point of the day is this, that what we see and what we feel are not all that is true. What we see and what we feel are not all that is true. We'll see this through the life of Saul. We'll see this through the example of Jonathan. But this lesson needs cemented in my own heart. When I feel overwhelmed by my present situation, 
I need to make sure that I'm obeying him. Certainly, I should take time to sing a song or to sacrifice something for his namesake, but not at the expense of doing what I know he's already called me to do. Usually, this sudden creative urge, either from my kids or myself, is a stall tactic, only to obey partially and in turn disobey completely. And it's a revealing, it's revealing of a heart that is more fixed on self, trusting the temporary circumstances instead of the eternal promises of a father who knows beyond what we can see and beyond what we can feel and works all things for our good and his glory. Because what we see and what we feel are not all that is true. In our passage this morning, we'll, con- we'll, we'll encounter the contrast of two divergent hearts. The heart of Saul, trusting his own intuition because of all that he was seeing and feeling in the moment. And the heart of Jonathan, that trusted the true promises of God despite all that he was seeing and feeling in the moment. Now I believe this account this morning will serve as both a warning and an encouragement. If we truly embrace this perspective, it can be one of those anchoring truths that guide us in the most confusing of times. In the times when we are hard-pressed to see any way out, in the times when we feel that we have no options, in the times when we have been waiting and waiting and waiting and hearing nothing, this message from this passage won't make things easier or remove us from challenging situations or daunting decisions, but it will give us clarity on what weight we give to the things in which we are tempted to place our trust. This morning, we're going to walk through 1 Samuel chapter 13 and half of chapter 14. We won't be reading every passage or every verse of this passage, but as we walk through the story, you'll want to have a Bible open and on your lap and in your hands so that you can be ready to jump into these sections very quickly. If you need a a copy of the scriptures, our host would be glad to give you one this morning. Just wave your hand at them or catch their eye. If you don't have your own Bible, please keep this as our gift to you, which would actually be a gift to us if you would take that and use it and read it faithfully. But as they're handing those out, before we look into our passage, would you join me in prayer and asking the Lord to bless our time this morning? Let's pray. Father, Would you open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts and convict us and challenge us that what we see and what we feel are not all that is true and that we will anchor ourselves in what is most true in your promises. Would you continue to teach me even in this moment to follow you more closely and to trust you completely? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, chapter 13 begins, and in the ESV translation, it begins like this. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Some of your translations may have the more familiar kingly pattern for introducing kings throughout Scripture. The NIV states that Saul was 30 years old. When he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. That's the pattern that we normally see in scripture. But this one says it was one year and then reigned two years over Israel. We know that Saul wasn't a one-year-old child when he became king. We know Saul didn't begin a military conquest at three years old. 
This passage does, though, begin the account of his kingly rule. Prior to this, he was anointed, confirmed, and living, in a sense, as the king-elect, probably for one year, and then followed by two years of unrecorded reigning. So in this passage, we drop right into the middle of the king's present situation that'll lead us to see the foolishness of Saul. The foolishness of Saul once again, because we've seen it before and we'll continue to see it again. He really can't get out of his own way. Remember, Saul is the king that the people asked for, which is literally what the name Saul means, asked for or longed for. He was what the people wanted. And God gave his people what they desired. One of their desires is that they would get a king that would go before them and fight their battles. Like the other nations. This was the calling and this was the charge of a king. And yet we see that two years had passed before we have any record of a battle that Saul fought as king. Additionally, as Saul is numbering his people and sending some of them home, Jonathan is introduced into the story. And he is the one taking action. He is the one winning the battle. Of course, the king is credited with the victory, but this leads to the people becoming a stench to their enemy, the Philistines. Now, I'm not sure of the best practices for a military strategy, but sounding the trumpet and announcing the defeat of an outpost or garrison of enemy troops seems to be ill-advised at best, because that's exactly what happened. This small little victory happened, and Saul promoted it to all to hear, for everyone to know. It wasn't like the Philistines were completely defeated in this moment. It was just the first score of the game, announced and celebrated for all to hear. It was almost as if, after two years of seeming inaction, Saul prematurely celebrated to prove himself as worthy of what his people had asked for. This is another reason why Saul just can't have nice things. He finds a way to keep messing things up. The Philistines, though, took exception to this celebration and this boasting, and they countered by gathering their troops to fight with Israel. Look at verses 5 through 7. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude, It's probably a little overkill for the 3,000 men of Israel that Saul had assembled. But also a terrible irony for the people of God. The people, God's people, who are to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And now their enemy is described in that way, highlighting how overwhelming this situation has become. But that's not all. The men of Israel began to retreat to hide, to run from an enemy that the Lord had promised to deliver. And these are clues that are reminiscent of the times of the judges, the times that Israel hoped Saul would lead them out of. Here in Judges 6, in the story that's around the story of Gideon, we see that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. In this situation, some Hebrews were even crossing over to leave the promised land. A terrible reversal and lack of trust of the promises of God. This brings us to the foolishness, the deepest foolishness of Saul. Looking at verses 8 and 9, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. See, for Saul, there was a clear direction on how these offerings were to be made and who was to make them. In 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10, which we covered several weeks ago, Saul spent some time with Samuel in the middle of his bumbling search for his dad's lost donkeys. And Samuel made known to Saul the word of God. And he anointed Saul, and he gave him further instructions. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, it outlines some of the signs that Saul was to look for. And for these specific instructions, he said, Go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, whether our account here in chapter 13 was the specific fulfillment of these instructions three years later or not, it was the common practice that Saul would have and should have known. Go to Gilgal, wait for Samuel before taking action. It goes on, verses 10 through 13, as you're following along. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now in this situation, we might actually be tempted to feel a little bit of sympathy for poor, Paul, for poor Saul in this situation. I mean, his soldiers were leaving him. The Philistines were pressing in. Samuel was seemingly delayed. And these things were all true. The circumstances were looking very dire. And Saul makes some good points. But was Samuel delayed? It may have felt that way, but he did arrive between the two sacrifices. It may have been later on the seventh day than Saul would have preferred, but Saul needed to prioritize the word of the Lord by trusting what he knew to be true rather than what he saw and what he felt were overwhelming. And if he had, it would have gone well for Saul. But God sovereignly had other plans. Because what we see and what we feel are not all that is true. And Saul's response reveals his heart. A heart that was filled with excuses immediately, instantly. That was the first reaction. Rather than a heart of repentance. 
And that's what separates him from so many others that have sinned. Is that Saul turned to excuses first rather than heartfelt repentance. Saul was a leader who was passive in so many instances and finally taking action where it wasn't permitted. He was foolish. He was afraid. And once again, he was seeking the favor of the Lord, not as a priority, but as the last resort. Not as God commanded, but on his own terms. Not because his heart longed for the Lord, but because he desired the blessings. He desired the outcomes that God could bring. Where do you find yourself when waiting feels uncomfortably long? How do you respond when you are walking through your days and it seems like the Lord is not timely in meeting your needs? When we take our eyes off of the Lord and look to our present situation, it is understandably daunting. But that is precisely when, in these situations, that what we see and what we feel are not all that is true. The heart is deceitful above all else, and our senses will betray us. And so we need an anchor to ground us and to make us steadfast, faithful, and unmovable to the commands the Lord has given us. You may find yourself in life waiting for a promotion, and you've done everything right and it still doesn't come. Or you may find yourself parenting faithfully, and your kids are not turning out the way that you envisioned. You may find yourself working hard at a relationship and it is not being reciprocated. You may find yourself waiting for a relationship that you dreamed of and hope is quickly fading. You may find yourself seeking relief from an affliction and the end doesn't seem any nearer. Faithfulness in these situations is difficult. But the temptation in all of us is to take shortcuts to blame the circumstances, to blame God for taking too long. And we settle for less than what God is doing to form us into the image of his son, Jesus. He uses these trials to grow us, to strengthen us, and to make us more like him. He brings people into our lives like Pastor Tim. What a great example to shepherd us and to help keep us on track and to focus us in when these afflictions come or these difficulties come to point us to Jesus because those situations help us grow to be more like Christ. But when things don't make sense, how do we make decisions in these situations? How do we make wise decisions in situations and not fall to the temptation that Saul did? Especially those situations that seem unclear on how we are to move forward. I believe there are three anchors that are true and that help us to have a heart of wisdom and stay faithful when we are weak. The first, we lean into the people of God, his church. We seek godly counsel. We surround ourselves consistently with the people of God who love us, who are seeking God for us and with us, and who strengthen us and hold us up in our weaknesses. We also trust the spirit of God who leads us and will not abandon us and comforts us and points us to the word of God. It's one of our core values even here at Grace as a church to be Bible-driven and spirit-led. It's the kind of people that we long to be in confusing times, people that trust the eternal truths of the Lord rather than on the temporary lies of the world. 
the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God are his gifts of grace to us to guide us in uncertain times and overwhelming situations. But one of the things that I have loved to see and learn about this passage is that we see echoes of Genesis in this very passage, and it's no accident. The story of Saul is just a small part of the story of God that leads us to Jesus. The foolishness of Saul is our foolishness. And it was Adam's foolishness before him. You see, the people's hope was that Saul would be a new Adam, one that would lead them back to greatness, back to victory, and to fight their battles and bring peace with God. Instead, Saul was just another old Adam, doomed to fail. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had taken the fruit and they had eaten it, they hid in fear and in shame. And when God came walking in the garden, he said this, Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? It's the very same question. The very same question that Samuel asks of Saul. What have you done? And just like Saul, Adam and Eve were filled with excuses of distrust. Well, we saw that the fruit was good. And and it was this woman's fault. Yes, the woman that you gave me, Adam says to God. Just like Samuel. And Saul says to Samuel, you did not come in time. You were delayed. And one chapter later in Genesis, the Lord confronts Cain after he had killed his brother Abel. And he says the very same question, what have you done? Saul is us. And failing and making excuses for not trusting the Lord. But there is a new Adam that will come. One who saw his circumstances and felt overwhelmed by all that was to come and yet trusted what he knew to be true. And he remained faithful. Luke chapter 22 verses 41 and following say that Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You see, where Adam fell in the garden, Jesus knelt victoriously in the garden. What Jesus could see and what he could feel were not all that he knew to be true. He trusted the word of his father above all else so that he could endure the cross because of the joy set before him. He is the new and better and last Adam. See, Jesus lived the sinless life that we could never live. And he died the sinner's death that we deserved even though he didn't deserve it so that we would not taste death but live eternally, righteously having peace with God. He paid the penalty on the cross and secured that victory through his resurrection for all who put his trust, their trust in him alone. It's his faithfulness. And it's his faithfulness that we get a glimpse of through the son of Saul, a son who saves, who points us to Jesus, the son who saves. 
for Saul, this situation only gets worse. And his leadership as a failed king is highlighted even more. The next few verses in this passage, he counts his men. There's only 600 of the 3,000 that he had at first. And these men facing a strong enemy are armed with only farm tools and not very sharp ones at that. His poor leadership left his army unequipped for the battle as the Philistines controlled all of the blacksmiths in the land. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had a sword. What a pitiful and laughable sight. But what demonstrated Saul's weakness only served to highlight the greatness and glory of God. Because in chapter 14, as we move on, we see the faithfulness of Jonathan. The faithfulness of Jonathan in contrast to the foolishness of Saul. Where Saul was passive and weak, Jonathan took action and relied on the Lord's strength. And clearly not trusting his dad's leadership or believing that maybe Saul would find a way to mess things up again, Jonathan and his armor bearer went on a side mission while Saul was once again not fighting and keeping his distance from the action that his position called him to engage. Saul is also hanging out with an interesting cast of characters here toward the beginning of chapter 14. You see, it may appear like Saul is spending his time with godly individuals. He's hanging out with a priest after all. But a priest named Ahijah, who is the nephew of Ichabod and the grandson of Eli. Yes, that same Eli who had the priesthood taken from his family for all time. And yes, that uncle Ichabod, the one named the glory has departed after the ark of the Lord had been captured earlier. I'd say Saul was not surrounding himself with the people of God, and it was hurting him. Jonathan, however, showed himself to be faithful despite the circumstances that stood before him. The description of the terrain between Jonathan and the Philistine garrison is enough to strike fear and cause one to do nothing. Chapter 14, verses 4 and 5 say that within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was, was Bozes and the name of the other, Sina. The one crag rose on the north front in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. When we're naming our rocky crags and our terrain, you know that's not good. That they mean something significant. And there's something that people looked at and said, that's too much. We don't go there. Bozes literally means thorny. And Sena means slippery. These were cliffs that would seem impossible to pass. But for Jonathan, what he saw and what he felt did not deter him from believing what he knew to be true. Here's what he said in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. His trust was in the Lord. And Jonathan's comment that the Philistines were uncircumcised was not an insult or an observation of their anatomy, but a re recognition that they were the enemies of God. He was spiritually minded, where his father often only spoke in human terms or thought in human terms. His recognition of the true nature of the Philistines 
was the same recognition that later David makes of Goliath when he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And rather than cross over the Jordan, away from the promises of God like so many were doing, Jonathan said, in a sense, let us go over. For we are God's covenant people. We are those who cross over to the promises of God. He trusted what he knew to be true when insurmountable obstacles stood in his way. Because what we see and what we feel are not all that is true. Jonathan saw this and he, he acted upon it in faithfulness. Question, what's our first inclination when facing challenges, temptation, or unmet expectations? Do we stand tall on the promises of God or do we hide in caves or under the shade of a tree forsaking the clear direction of God? Jonathan shows courage in this situation and he, he makes a plan in place to confirm that the Lord was going before him. And he said, behold, we will cross over to the men and show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. This was the sign that the Lord had given them over to the hand. And so as they showed themselves to the Philistines, the Philistines said, look, those little Hebrews, they're coming out of their holes where they have hidden themselves. Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. In other words, they were mockingly daring them to come up so they could teach them a lesson. This was the sign. Jonathan and his armor bearer then climbed hand over foot that's a tough climb, using all, all of their limbs to get where they needed to go. And reaching the top, the two of them killed 20 Philistines of this Philistine garrison. And a panic ensued in the camp among all of the people. And then the Lord brought an earthquake, causing a very great panic. You see, the Lord was in this fight. And the Lord honored the faithfulness of Jonathan. Meanwhile, Saul and his people, they noticed from a distance that there was a stirring in the Philistine camp. So he ordered a head count. Why is this happening? What's going on over there? Hadn't, he hadn't even realized that his own son was missing. And so Saul turns to his typical mode of operation, get the ark. And now this may have been good or it maybe was just another instance of Saul pulling out his lucky rabbit's foot. Either way, when he saw that the tumult in the Philistine camp got even worse and was even growing, he wanted to seize the opportunity. So he was like, nah, forget the ark. Let's just go. And when they arrived, every Philistine sword was against one another. And there was no doubt. The Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel. So as we've walked through this account, we've seen Saul and Jonathan. And they couldn't be more different. Through Saul, a foolish and untrusting leader, judgment came. But through Jonathan, a faithful servant who trusted the Lord, Israel found victory and was saved. You see, Saul had the position, but he didn't lead. 
He took credit for victories he didn't win. He was passive when he should have taken action. And he took action when he should have waited. And he justifies his sin with excuses rather than repentance, demonstrating that he takes God's word lightly, appearing spiritual by doing these rituals, but not having a heart that truly trusts the Lord. But then Jonathan, he was a subordinate who served Israel as a prince. And he fought the battles that his dad Saul should have fought. He doesn't hide when it's the easy pathway. And he sees things from God's perspective with a spiritual rather than a worldly point of view. And as he trusts the Lord, he demonstrates risk-taking faith. Remembering the promises of the Lord for Israel and not hesitating to put his faith into action. There were two hearts. One pointed toward the Lord and one running in the opposite direction. One having the appearance of godliness, but by his actions denying its power. And one having the mind of the Lord and calling on his saving power. At the end of the day, to believe that what we see and what we feel are not all that is true will make all the difference. It'll make all the difference. Do we trust what appears to be true or what we know through the word of God to be unwavering and unshakable? When we take God's word lightly, your ideas and opinions will always carry more weight than his. And when we take God's word lightly, he revolves around your desires and preferences. And when we take God's word lightly, what you see and what you feel will outweigh his word. But when we take God's word as weighty in our lives, the anchor that holds firm and by which all circumstances are interpreted by, you will center your life around him. You will see truth as greater than feelings. You'll see your preferences give way to his desires. Now this morning, I'm not telling you that following Jesus will be easy or that staying faithful will come without resistance or that repentance will always flow without excuse or that trusting the promises of God will be the obvious choice over what we see and what we feel. But it is worth it. Obedience is always worth it. It's the love language of God. And it's not a lesson that Saul ever learns. In fact, in the very next chapter, spoiler alert for a, for a coming sermon, Saul is at it again. And he's confronted by Samuel once again after Saul did what seemed right rather than following a clear command of the Lord. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel confronts him and says, Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And may we always be a people who know that what we see and what we feel are not all that is true. Would you pray with me? Father, I confess that what I see and what I feel often carries so much weight. And in the times when I know what is true, I turn from it. 
God, I pray that is not true of any one of us in this room going forward, that we'll put so much weight on your word and so much trust in the promises that you have given us that we won't be deterred by the circumstances and the situations that we see and that we feel, that you'll help us to be strong, that you'll help us to trust, that you'll surround us and that we'll constantly surround ourselves with the people of God, your people, and that we'll rely on the spirit that you've given us and that we'll rely on your word that you have given us. God, as we sing and we do offer sacrifices at times and we do sing songs of praise and we do show tokens of our love for you, that those things will never overshadow obedience to the clear directions you've given us. And as we sing and as we do those things, that they would just be an overflow, an outflow of our love for you and our obedience to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.